the 16th of April, 2017, and this is episode 327 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Welcome to a very special episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Stephanie, and I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hi, Andreas. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, are we playing Where's Adam? Yes, when the cat's away, the mice will play or something like that. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun. It's like Where's Waldo? <laughs> yes, it's like No Rules Podcasting. That's right. So Adam actually had a catastrophic computer issue that is making him unable to join us today. But we thought we would record anyway. So sorry to hear about that, Adam, and hope you recover as quickly as possible. Today, we're going to talk about something that also is going to need some recovery, <laughs> Ethereum, and a lot of the, the various dApps, which you, you have an interesting acronym for, for dApps, not instead of decentralized autonomous applications or whatever. You had a, an alternative acronym for that, Andreas, right? Well, yes. I mean, I think we will see decentralized applications in the future, but what we're seeing now is a different interpretation of dApp. It's deliberately audacious Ponzi plan. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. So obviously, as with a lot of stuff in the crypto space, there are a lot of scams that are plaguing sort of the Ethereum community and people who are interested in that. There's one in particular that just sort of came to light this week, right, where the CEO of one of these companies basically took the money and ran on like day two after they finished their crowdfund, right? That's correct. So the ICO for one of these dApps is called Matchpool, which so when you said implies, the name of it, I said, "What is that? A dating service?" And I was joking, but you said it really was a dating service. Oh yes, indeed, it is. It's an Ethereum-based dating service. I can't imagine the the pool of candidates that are going to be in that. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say anything about Ethereum users, but I mean, at least we know from demographic surveys of the Bitcoin community, it tends to skew male and heterosexual. Sexual, so all I had to say is that there's only one thing I can imagine that's worse than an Ethereum dating pool, and that's a Bitcoin dating pool. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, and this is why Ethereum freaks me out too, because what is it like an algorithm to find you a partner or something based on Ethereum? Why is the blockchain suddenly finding us love interests? I really don't know. I haven't looked into this particular ICO. I think. One of the big challenges that the Ethereum community is facing right now is a stream of these ICOs where they're putting the cart before the horse. So they're, they're like fundraising first, build an app next. Yeah, and we'll um, work out the details of how exactly we're going to do this later. I mean, I could totally see this just being something that was hyped and said, oh, yeah, we're going to start a dating service on Ethereum. Doesn't that sound cool? It's like a high-tech way to find a partner or or a better <laughs> OK Cupid or something with technological twist. And people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Here, take my money. I don't need to know the details. And that's where you get into trouble. I think that has persisted for many years is the way companies raise money is they make a really good pitch deck and they go to a VC and they pitch that idea and the VC gives them money to start building the idea. That's not how it works. It's not how it works at all, in fact. Uh, apart from a few years or a few months, maybe, in the most exuberant days of the funding bubbles, both in 2000 and more recently, VCs do not give 
money out on a pitch deck not not even seed fund you really need to first look for angel investors and other sources of funding including friends and family and a lot of sweat equity and build something and then you have several rounds of financing that give just about the amount of money you need to take the idea to the next stage but that's not what's happening with these icos instead what you have is you have a, a pitch and you go directly to raising significant amounts of money on something that's barely a napkin sketch. And predictably, that's not a good way to to run things. Right. As many potential problems as there are with trying to raise money through venture capital, approaching venture capitalists, and maybe not being able to get funded in the very early stages of when it's just an idea and you don't have much of a product yet, you know, as much as that might be a struggle for some entrepreneurs, there's a reason that they do things that way, right? VCs want to get their money back. In fact, they want to make a return on their investment. And why would they give you money if they weren't reasonably confident that they might get that return? And so they're going to vet you pretty carefully before giving you money. And with an ICO, there is just not that vetting process. It's more people speculating on what they think your company is going to be valued at or even speculating that the hype is just going to go up around the company, not even like the product itself would have to be good. So there's some issues. There's this vision of like, it's getting rid of a gatekeeper, right? You don't have to be an accredited investor. You don't have to have a ton of money. Anyone now can invest in a company through an ICO, which is an initial coin offering. That's like a kind of a play on the IPO, initial public offering of, of stocks in a company. With an ICO, anyone can invest, but that's just it. Anyone can invest and they don't have to be a specialist or really have any idea what they're putting their money towards. There's it doesn't really serve to make the product better. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't serve to provide mentorship to the entrepreneur. It doesn't serve to improve the product, to give them feedback that maybe seasoned entrepreneurs, because VCs are usually have been entrepreneurs themselves. They know business and they know how to take a company to a scale it up to a big level. They're giving feedback and mentorship sometimes, not just money. And of course, they're not going to give you money if they don't think you have a good idea. So it's almost like a peer review process, I guess, in a way that helps to make the product and the company better. But you definitely don't have that with ICO. And I, I don't think we want to paint the traditional VC process as flawless or in any way. No, or that there peer review is not fact, flawless. Definitely not. Yeah. There isn't an, a giant possibility for creating new avenues that are broader and more accessible and more global and can empower the projects that won't get traditional funding. Absolutely, all of those things. But then there's the opposite extreme, which is basically this irrational exuberance that comes really from the fact that for many of the people involved in this, just as the early days of Bitcoin, when the price jumped up suddenly, people find that this is easy money. Right, the money that they didn't expect yeah. to have. And that increases the tolerance for risk. People are much more likely to risk a lot more if they feel that it was gains that came easily, especially if they think there's more coming, right? And so you get this uh, situation where you have naive investors making really poor choices, at least in my mind. And maybe I'm just being an old fuddy-duddy patronizing idiot and not seeing the amazing potential of this new world of crowdfunding. But really, I, I don't think it's that. I do see the amazing potential. I just don't think that these particular ICOs are exploring the amazing potential. Mostly what they're doing is finding fools to part them from their money, which has always been easy. 
and this is now a trend, right? Especially with the price rise in Ethereum, it seems like since Ethereum is still trying to find its killer app, just like Bitcoin is still trying to find its killer app. In the meantime, what substitutes for a killer app is an incubator for tokens. And the primary reason to build a token is as an initial coin offering in order to fund a venture. So, hey, think about it this way. The DAO is back. <laughs> now the whole of Ethereum is the DAO, right? Yeah. The idea that you can venture fund all of these investments has now essentially spread to encompass the whole of Ethereum. And it seems to be one of the big activities that's happening. Certainly not the only one. There's a lot of really interesting, fantastic innovations and projects that are happening. Swarm and ENS and Raiden and Golem. There's a lot of interesting things that are happening, but there's also a lot of really dumb ideas being swept up in this ICO frenzy. I hate to say it, it's not going to end well. I mean, a lot of people are going to get burned. So let, let's talk a bit more about what happened with Matchpool. Matchpool. Yeah, I want to hear Matchpool. this story. You you fill me in, Andreas. Well, maybe they should have called it Matchbook because, you know, they said Because it went it up in fire. flames. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> the project raised $5.7 million in 48 hours. One day wow. after the fundraiser was completed, the co-founder on the slap says, I regret to announce as co-founder of Matchpool that I'm leaving this project. I was involved in architecting Matchpool, writing this white paper and writing the first draft of the smart contracts. I was not involved in the implementation of the ICO. I have asked internally, what is going on with the funds you sent to Matchpool, but have not received a satisfactory answer? Over the last two days, 37,500 Ether have been withdrawn from the multi-sig wallet by the CEO. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. Close quote. What the f*** kind of multi-sig wallet is it if the CEO <laughs> withdraw the money single-handedly? Right. right. First, first question. Clearly, you're doing that part wrong. Yeah, he's not exactly taking a lot of responsibility either in this first paragraph. Yes, from the multi-sig wallet. All right, a quote from the multi-sig wallet by the CEO. I won't repeat the name because this is kind of a third-party allegation. I don't want to fan it. But without any explanation or announcement due to the need for, quote, hedging, their words, CEO keeps claiming he's working with Bitcoin Suisse, which I believe is a is a company that allows you to buy gold or something like that. And it's all okay. But so far, I haven't seen any evidence of this. Quote continues, I suggest you all demand an explanation and keep a close watch. In all likelihood, your guppies are worthless. The terms and conditions seem deliberately designed to prevent contributors having legal recourse in the case of misuse of your money. You in don't event, say. <laughs> Wait, what are guppies? Is that the token that they were selling? Possibly. Or, or a just slang using term? Kind of a slang term for their money. money. I'm not sure. Okay. Mm. In either event, I believe the standards of transparency and integrity in this organization are well below what is needed for a blockchain project, uh, which is why I can be really? part of it. Well, quite frankly, dear sir, the standards are not below the standards of transparency and integrity that are needed for a blockchain project. I think you've overestimated <laughs> the, the, the industry standards. This is a pretty yeah, no, much it's about par on par the with the uh, industry standard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the bar is pretty low. Wow. Oh so basically, he's trying to diffuse 
by pointing fingers at the CEO. What did, did the CEO say anything? I haven't found a response yet, but but it's it, typical. Whenever a scammer kind of leaves, they're like always blaming someone. It's always someone else's fault, right? Well, let's let's hope that in fact hedging is happening. But the problem is now, this is all up to the integrity of one person who has single-handed control over the funds. Mm. And you shouldn't be in that position in the first place, right? So, already a problem. This is going to keep happening. And it's going to attract entirely the wrong kind of attention. Even when the founders, and I think this is the real lesson, right? Even when you have founders who are principled and really want to build something and are really excited and have every good intention of building something, you take a barely formed partnership with a bunch of people who haven't spent a year or two working together with a company that doesn't yet have an ethos or culture with no processes, and you inject into that vehicle this amount of fuel, you can't be surprised if it blows up. You cannot be surprised if it blows up. I use this analogy in in the recent Ethereum meetup I did, where I talked about what is the fundamental difference between a rocket and a bomb. Chemically <laughs> speaking, they're identical. Yeah. the The only difference is in the speed and direction of the exothermic explosion, right? So it's either in all directions and very fast, or it's in one direction and carefully controlled by a device called the governor. (laughs) The only difference between a rocket and a bomb is governance. And so if you want to go to the moon with your latest IPO, and you don't have governance, and you don't have a strong partnership, and you don't have a strong culture or ethos, even the best well-meaning of teams, they're going to be so challenged by the influx of this money, right? I've watched, I speak from personal experience, right? I've watched people I thought were friends and trustworthy be changed when a large amount of money suddenly becomes possible. And overnight, they start doing things you never expected them to do, right? Money corrupts, and it corrupts really fast. And, And this is not the exception. This is the rule. Few, very few people can resist the temptation of suddenly coming into the type of wealth that can change their life, can change their security, can change their family's lifestyle. And so if you just inject that kind of money into a project that doesn't have maturity, it's guaranteed to fail. Even the best of projects, even a good project with, with some really good people, you throw that kind of money in and it breaks it, right? Yeah. That's the problem, I think. Now, it gets even more interesting if all of that money then gets put into a smart contract. This seems to be the lesson from the DAO that people have yet failed to learn, which is that a smart contract is a custodial account, kind of like an exchange, right? It's a hot wallet. The only difference is instead of being run by people, it's run by code. Um, But what it does is it concentrates control of money from many people into one contract. Think of it that way, right? If you have the DAO, it took 115 million from 25,000 people, which was secured in 25,000 wallets on 25,000 different devices with 25,000 private keys, and put it into one contract with one set of code. Which is a single point of failure. Right. So then the question was, was that 25,000 times more secure? Because that's what you have to have, right? Right, yeah. if If you concentrate... 
something that's controlled by 25,000 people into something that's controlled by, by one set of code, you'd better make it 25,000 times more secure or you've just increased the reward by 25,000 without, without con- reducing increasing the risk. The security, yeah. Right. So your risk-reward ratio is now way out of whack. And what that means is you've built a honeypot. Now you only have to find vulnerabilities in one set of code to get 25,000 times greater reward. Previously, you had to attack 25,000 different wallets. Yeah, That's the consideration you have to make with smart contracts. That doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means it has to be done gradually. And you have to make the vehicle survive long enough to collect some experimental data to make it better next time. If it blows up on the launch pad (laughs) before you even start getting telemetry, (laughs) then not only have you blown up all of that money, but you also collected no useful data. Case in point, the Dow found one bug. That's it. $115 million to find one bug. Could we have found that one bug with a million dollars or maybe even a hundred thousand? And what other bugs were there? Maybe what about the voting model? What about the governance model? What about the split function if it worked properly? We could have learned so much more if only it made it off the launch pad. But it was so heavily laden with fuel that when it blew up on the launch pad, it's all gone. And then we learned very little from it. I think these smart contracts and these ICOs need to start a lot smaller so that they can teach us more lessons and not blow up spectacularly right in the beginning. Yeah, I really like that rocket bomb analogy. So what would that look like in practice for ICOs to, I guess, start smaller and assure investors that they're putting better governance structures and better plans in place before they start raising funds? And how can people do due diligence? Well, I wouldn't invest in any project that doesn't have a limit on how much money it can take in. Mm. Simple. That's what we learned with the Dow, right? They didn't want to raise $115 million, but they didn't cap it. So if you don't cap it, what happens next? This is a smart contract. You can do that. It's not that hard. Right. Why are we not seeing projects raising 50000 Yeah. What can a good Let- project do with an interim investment of 50000 50, for three months or six months? And then deliver some milestones, deliver some de- deliverables, and do another fundraise for another 100 and, yeah. and do it in stages. Why not? I mean, that I would not invest in anything that was trying to, first of all, raising unlimited funds, like open-ended ICOs, no way, or time-based ICOs, no f-ing way. And seriously, I would not be doing more than five figures, maybe low six, for any project that doesn't already have a product, an installed user base, and an actual running application. And that's what you did with your, you had the DAM, right? The Decentralized Arbitration and Mediation Network? Yeah, I mean, and mostly that proposal was primarily to start a conversation and get feedback. We wanted to see if people were interested in it. And we did get a lot of interest and a lot of really good feedback. So that was useful. Never, and did you never ever... really proceeded beyond that. Um, okay, so you just got feedback. But, you never actually limited. did the fundraise. Right. It was, yeah, but it was limited to $25,000. Right. Um, and and so you to do, to do a six month project. Yeah. So you put into practice what you're suggesting here. I just wanted to point that out. Well, yes, I wasn't thinking of that, but yes, indeed I did. And and part of the reason is, you know, honestly, if you don't yet have a team, a pipeline, a development process, et cetera, et cetera, you can't really spend money like that productively. 
And you don't want to create a three-year runway because if you do that, then you're never going to deliver anything. You've got <laughs> to have deadlines, right? So it's far better to do something small and contained and use it just enough fuel for what you're trying to do. I use the analogy that right now what we're seeing is not rocket science. It's cousin Cletus buying <laughs> 20 barrels of fertilizer, mixing it with fuel oil, putting a launcher on top and going, I'm going to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> kaboom yeehaw right? yeehaw kaboom and then the problem is now that's the number one search when you search for rocket science <laughs> that comes up and so everybody thinks well clearly rocket science doesn't work we will never achieve orbit because the first example and the only example i have is of that so the bigger issue right here is not just that people will lose money which they obviously will in very large numbers or even the fact that eventually the sec will come knocking but the bigger bigger problem is that this is accumulating reputation damage not just on ethereum on the concept of a decentralized autonomous organization which i believe strongly is the killer app the, the modern corporation reinvented as a governance model, which is what you need to do rocket science. That is the killer app. And it's now accumulating reputational damage. Because now if you search for DAO, what's the first thing you get? The DAO. Kaboom. You get the video of Cletus turning himself into mist. And oh, the yeah. same thing with ICOs, right? ICOs and the idea of mass-scale international crowdfunding is an enormously important concept that can deliver enormous benefit, especially in the developing world. In fact, if you look at it, outside of the US, venture capital and angel funding is very difficult to do. Yeah. So th this is a really important thing. And you've got idiots f***ing it up. And not just f***ing it up, but ruining the reputation of the entire concept. And it's going to set back everything for years. And that's really what more concerned about. Yeah, I definitely hear that concern and share it. I'm just wondering, like we were talking about at the beginning, people view Ether to a certain extent as easy money, right? Because there were these great gains that were made when people invested Bitcoin into the original Ethereum crowd sale. I think yes. one, one Bitcoin invested and that's got you 2000 Ether. And if you hold held on to it, you could have made a huge amount of money. So there's that aspect. Do you think like people are investing in these dApps just kind of as a gambling endeavor? Like, do you think they really think that this is like a sound investment? Or do you think they're like, well, this is really high risk. If I just kind of put some of this play money that I got, you know, these easy gains that I got into some of these dApps, maybe I'll make another huge gain. And yeah, 90% of them will blow up and be scams, but maybe I'll hit hit it big on one of them. Do you think there's that kind of effect? Or do you think people oh, that, actually... that's entirely the effect. I think that's entirely the effect. And, and the problem with that effect is that if everybody does that, then you are almost guaranteed to create one to spectacular the... failure after another because these projects are getting very little scrutiny and very much money. And that's a terrible combination. Here's another one. Yeah, it's like no one's um, taking the ecosystem seriously. But I guess I'm saying, like, what could possibly be done about that? Like, it seems like it's just set up that way. That's kind of a feature of the whole Ethereum world at this point. Well, I mean, the problem is that you've got a lot of money that's flown into Ethereum. Same problem Bitcoin had, right? 
which is causing people to have all of this exuberance. We've seen a load of really stupid ideas being funded in Bitcoin by traditional VCs, even. And the whole Bitcoin blockchain, now we're doing blockchain for everything. And and companies are using that to get a lot of funding for, for very little practical or real results. That's already happening. I mean, this is partly a reflection of the fact that we have an asset and cash bubble going on in the U.S. economy at least, right? Which is enormous. Mm -hmm. Stock valuations, money chasing money. There's too much money sloshing around in the system and it's creating these ridiculous investment decisions. If the Fed rate is at whatever it is now, one and a quarter or whatever it is, that, that, that means the cost of money is still so low that even a tiny return is worth doing. So it flips the risk reward ratio. So you start chasing smaller and smaller returns, riskier and riskier investments, and a lot of money starts sloshing around the system. That spills over into VCs. They start funding blockchain bullshit companies. Uh, those end up you know, eventually pushing up the price of all of the crypto assets and all of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin included. And then you get a trickle-down effect where other investors lower down in the chain who made money off Bitcoin or Ethereum are now investing in, well, they're, they're investing in altcoins that, that have no, <laughs> no nothing, really. Right. And then they're investing in ICOs that have nothing to show yet. And in ridiculous amounts, listen to this, Cosmos, which is a blockchain of blockchains platform. Okay, what does that even mean? <laughs> what do you mean, what does that even mean? A blockchain of blockchains. Aren't you already excited? Aren't you no. tingling? No. What does that mean? <laughs> it's, 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 it's the amazing buzzwords. word that can raise you money twice in the same sentence. <laughs> All right, I'm 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 sold. Shut up and take my Bitcoins. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this is actually in some way interesting. It's to connect distributed ledgers together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that could be interesting, all, sure, but I want to know more, of course. Yes. So it's a hub-based system using inter-blockchain communication network that allows you to connect blockchains together. Don't know any more than that. I'm just reading the brochure. And honestly, it's got a plan, it's got a blog, it's got an FAQ, and it's got a white paper and a bit of prototype code. But as far as I know, this isn't actually running anywhere. Right. Okay, so this little puppy, uh, and I'm not doubting the intentions of the founders. In fact, I've met someone who knows some of the founders and tells they're very principled and they really believe in this. And and that's not what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying this isn't real. All I'm saying is it hasn't proven itself yet. It's not, you know, it's not ready. And yet it raised $17 million in 28 minutes. Wow. (laughs) Can I repeat those numbers? $17 $17 million in 28 minutes. Jeez. And the response on the blog was, that was a resounding success. Oh, that was remarkable. Right? No, with no product. Yeah. No, I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is, I can tell you how this plays out. That kind of money destroys a company at that stage. 
completely yeah. destroys it. Because now you're going to have within a company, you know, that doesn't have, I mean, these people have not been working together for two years, developing a product, carefully balancing strategic risks, et cetera, et cetera. They're a young startup. You take a young startup, you throw that kind of money in, what happens? Infight, jockeying for position, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying this is, again, I'm not bashing Cosmos. Um, they may be a fantastic idea and may deliver fantastic return. I don't know. No, I don't think anybody knows. I, mm -hmm. What I do know is that if you raise $17 million in 30 minutes on a young startup, you're f***ed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's already almost spelling doom for your project. And what the hell were the investors thinking? Not thinking, obviously. And this is repeating again and again. I can give you 10 other examples in Ethereum, not as amazing as that. But on, you, the same, on the same but level. It, yeah, it's all ICO, ICO, IC, IC, ICO. So let's talk a bit about this idea of testing the security of smart contracts by putting small amounts of money into them, right? Yeah. So every one of these systems is a honeypot right? Yeah. And the only way to find out if the code is secure is to load it with a bit of money and put it out there and see if anybody hacks it. Yeah. If you put it out there and it has $10,000 in it and a month later it hasn't been hacked, you can say with a fair degree of certainty, you can say, okay, this code is $10,000 robust. That's the metric, right? How secure mm. is this? Is it secure? Security isn't a Boolean. It's not true, false, right? Yeah. It's not, is it it's secure a or not scale. secure? It's a scale. Well, we can actually measure that scale. So once you have a smart contract out there that's been sitting there with 10 grand in it for a month, you can say the code behind that smart contract is probably $10,000 secure. That's it. That's all you can say. Mm -hmm. If you take that same contract and you put $100,000 in and it still doesn't get hacked, then maybe you can escalate and say, oh, I think this might be $100,000 secure. And it's still certainly $10,000 secure and we're making progress. Uh, that's the only way really to measure the security in, in a public open system like this, right? Mm -hmm. Is you expose money to it and see what happens. And over time, you're gonna see some smart contracts or components of smart contracts are going to pass this test at increasingly larger amounts. They're going to become robust because they've been tested again and again. One of the really important things in Ethereum is that if you want to write a new smart contract that has a function, a function for transferring assets, or a function for token, or a function for changing ownership, or a function for splitting, or whatever it may be, you don't write a new function. It's a terrible idea. What you do is you take an existing function that somebody else has not only written, but tested in dozens or hundreds of other projects with serious money behind it, because then you know that's secure right. enough, that the bugs have been found. Every time you launch a smart contract, you're testing three things. First of all, you're testing Ethereum itself. The virtual machine still has bugs in it. Secondly, you're testing whatever libraries you used or whatever components you used to build it. So for example, one of the most popular components right now is called ERC20, which is a, a standard for tokens. It's how you build tokens. And it's something that I think most, if not all, the ICOs are using. So every time you launch something that uses 
Ethereum and uses ERC-20. You're testing the security of both Ethereum and the ERC-20 on top of that. And then you're testing on top of that any code you added to integrate it or extend it or do things specific to your project. That's three, three layers of testing, right? And then you put money into it and you see which layer breaks, right? And the way it should work is the bottom layer, which is Ethereum, should now be able to secure at least in individual wallets billions and in contract-based wallets that are properly well-written, probably tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions. Then the ERC-20 layer, we don't know yet, but maybe millions, uh, depending on how many of those are out there. And then finally, your code that you just launched, which you know you can trust it for zero at first, and then gradually <laughs> increase right. the amount, right? So you're building a foundation based on how much each platform has been tested and how much money it's been exposed to, and you're layering security on top of that. So here, j- just discovered Golem project last week found a bug. Yeah, let's get into this. So yeah. first of all, okay, what is Golem? So Golem is a grid computing project. Grid computing, what is that? That that means it is the ability to rent CPU or GPU cycles to other people and get paid in Ethereum. Okay, so so kind of like what MadeSafe was trying to do? What MadeSafe's trying to do in Bitcoin, what SETI at home was doing in PCs before digital currencies for volunteer purposes, but, you know, using Mm -hmm. lots of spare cycles on lots of computers. Okay. So that's that's the idea. So Golem is a dApp, and they have a coin called GNT. And I don't know if they did an ICO for this, but that's not the issue here. They found a bug, and they found a bug not in their own software, but a bug that affects all ERC-20 coins, all ERC-20 tokens. And it's actually a, not really... I don't know if you should call this a bug. They found a potential exploitable vulnerability in the way the Ethereum contract ABI, the binary interface, packs data during a function call, specifically the call data load opcode. And here's the bug. When you do a function call, like let's say a transfer, Ethereum will take the parameters of that function call, so the destination address, and then the value. So you Mm -hmm. might provide three parameters, which function you're calling, Maybe that's the transfer function, right? To send this token to someone in the ERC-20 spec. Then you pass it the address you want as the destination, and then you pass the value you want to send, right? Is, is that clear? Yeah, uh-huh. All right. So turns out the way those are passed to the underlying smart contract is that the values of address and, and the monetary amount or the amount of tokens are packed together. Okay. One is stuck onto the end of the other. The value is stuck to the end of the address, and then they're passed to the function. Okay. Here's the problem. Ethereum addresses, which is the first parameter, should be 20 bytes long. And in a lot of the exchanges and other interfaces where people can put in an Ethereum address to send these tokens to another place to do with draw, basically, the forms and the system, the local systems don't validate that input. You put in a hex number, it takes it, and it puts it into the transfer call without checking. And if it's less than 20 bytes long, something really, really bad happens. What happens? Uh, Let's take a simple example. You 
purposely creates an address whose last byte is zero. Okay. Which is a 20-byte address. You then chop off the last byte and you give it only the 19 bytes into the form. Mm-hmm. And the exchange takes that and it takes the value. Let's say your value was one token. And then it packs that together. Now, the problem is that because there's only 19 bytes of address, the most significant bits of the value get pushed and used as the address. So a zero, the leading zeros from the value parameter Mm -hmm. fill in the missing zeros at the end of the address, which produces the same address you had to start with because you purposely created it with zeros on the end. But what it also does is it now shifts the value left by one byte. Making Um, it bigger? Making it it 256 times bigger. Ethereum then notices there's a byte missing from the end and helpfully adds a zero at the end, but you've managed to shift the value. Now, presumably in the exchange, you deposit one token, then you ask for a withdrawal of one token. The exchange checks that the amount you're asking for is what you actually have in your account, which is one token. Then it packs the value and your address together. The value slides left, multiplied by 256, and the exchange gives you 256 tokens instead of one. Uh. Oh, whoopsie. Yeah, big deal. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So did anyone actually do this before they found out about the bug or? Someone did it by accident. And they did it by accident in such a way that they didn't actually achieve anything, but they could have caused enormous damage. Um, So what they did in this case by accident was they put a very short address. It was only about six bytes long, I think. And then when it tried to shift it, it shifted the value so hard that the exchange, I think, didn't have enough money and rejected the transaction <laughs> or something like that. So it was an accident and it didn't result in draining the exchange. But this either by accident or on purpose. Now, if you didn't create an address that has zeros on the end and you simply truncate an address and this thing packs in the leading zeros into the end of your address, it's going to send it to an address that has no private key. Right, it's going to burn it. Basically. Right, it's going to send it to a dead end destination that is unspendable. So either way, either if you use this to steal, or if you accidentally do it by chopping off the last digits of the address, and it ends up burning two hundred and fifty six or sixty five thousand times more than the amount that you had in of the exchange's money. I mean, you know, every byte you shift it multiplies by two hundred and fifty six. Right, Think about that for a second. Right? So that could get really bad, really fast. Well, that was the thing that saved them. It got so big so fast because they shifted a lot that there was not enough tokens. It exceeded the maximum number of postable tokens. Yeah. Th- that was lucky. And this could have been done as a deliberate attack. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem here, Ethereum addresses have no checksums built in from the very beginning. There are no, Bitcoin has a checksum. So when you have a Bitcoin address, it starts with a one, has a checksum on the end, you can't mistype it. The system will notice. Every address gets validated. But Ethereum addresses are just hex, 20 bytes of hex. That's it. There's no checksum in there. You can't tell if one's real or not. Why would there not be a checksum in Ethereum? Is there a reason for that? Or did it just get left out? It was a design decision. Uh, And I think a really, really bad design decision. It's already burnt a lot of people in many ways. Because it's easy to mistype an address. What would be Um, the advantage of not having a checksum? I think the, the decision was made to leave that up to user interface implementations at a higher level. And there is an implementation that was created later, uh, but it's not widely used. And 
on the vast majority of systems, it just uses raw addresses, which then leads to significant problems. Mm, okay. So Gollum is now saying on their blog that exchanges should verify the user inputs because it's not going to be done within Ethereum because it lacks the checksum feature. Well, I, and, you know, that's shocking that that's not already happening. I mean, this is... Right! <laughs> in terms of information security, this is basic stuff. This is the most basic stuff. You should at least have dealt with the top 10, let's hope, or maybe top 20 known web-based security vulnerabilities. And one of the most common is taking tainted user input without validating it and passing it to system processes. That's how you do code injection. That's how you do SQL injection. That's how you do buffer overruns. That's how you do all of these tricks to hack websites and exchanges. If they're passing unvalidated inputs directly to their Ethereum RPC API, this, you know, this is the least of the things that you can do with that, right? Yeah, this could have been a huge disaster. I guess it could still if if someone someone is able to take advantage of it because finding one exchange that allows them to put in these bad addresses and has the tokens to fulfill the orders. Well, keep in mind, you know, this is this was an exchanges, but every one of these little ICO platforms, every one of the websites that builds an ICO is going to build a rudimentary web interface wrapping around their token. Mm. And this is going to be done by a newly built startup with new programmers who perhaps are not security specialists. And so this is just a sign of what's to come. There, you're going to see these interfaces proliferating everywhere. And part, part of the trade-off that, that Ethereum makes compared to Bitcoin is to create a lot more flexibility, you know, and implement the move fast and break things ethos yeah. of startups, which is a design decision. It's a valid design decision. It, it, gives, it gives the project a a lot of velocity, but it also means that it will take more time to mature and find all of the little problems at the lower levels before you can start moving to do big audacious projects and ICOs and big contracts and complex contracts and build a lot of the infrastructure above. But nobody's waiting for that. They're all like, yeehaw, let's go. Strap the lawn chair to the top, light the fuse, go on to the moon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was promoted by Andreas and Stephanie. Music comes to us from Jared Rubin. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Thanks for listening.